The Matthew Wright Show on Crucible of Broadcast Excellence. Talk Radio. Put it on and keep it on. Too busy to catch us on the afternoons on Talk Radio. Too many children to care for. Too many jobs to manage. Well, never fear. Help is here in the shape of the Matthew Wright podcast, where we cut down three hours of entertainment and enlightenment every afternoon into tiny bite-sized morsels just for you, you busy so-and-so. So sit back and enjoy the best of the Matthew Wright Show here on Talk Radio. Overall, agriculture contributes something like £24 billion worth of revenues and £8.5 billion worth of gross value added to the UK economy. That was uh, back in 2015. For years, of course, they've been supported by the EU through the Common Agricultural Policy. No wonder, no wonder so many were worried about subsidies ahead of the Brexit referendum, but luckily they got this promise from a certain high-profile Leave campaigner called Boris. Hello, how are you doing? Did I just hear this morning that you would guarantee farmers would get exactly the same amount of payments that they do already? That's what we're saying, and that's what uh, George Eustace, the the farming minister, has said. No government in its right mind is going to want to take away any support from farming. So there you go, and uh, he was quite right, Boris. George Eustace did say that. He said we would be able to maintain the uh, subsidies once we stopped sending £350 million a week to the EU. So it must have come as a bit of a surprise to farmers up and down the country today to learn that uh, an updated version of George Eustace's new agricultural bill uh, lays out details of cuts to subsidies uh, amounting to up to 25%, depending on the size of the farm. It's more complicated than that, as the government moves away from a certain form of subsidy to a sort of different approach to agriculture. Will it benefit farmers, many of whom voted leave? Well, we're going to go and talk to one now. In fact, she uh, also stood as a Lib Dem candidate in the last uh, general election. Her name's Liz Webster, and she bills herself as a farmer's wife, I'm told. Good afternoon, Liz. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Nice talking to you. Well, what do you farm up there? Um, Well, we've got a mixed farm of arable, and we've also got a beef herd of about 300 who are very busy calving at the moment. I would would imagine so. And what kind of acreage are we talking about here? Altogether, we farm about 1,700 acres. Okay, okay. So um, were you surprised by uh, what you saw in George Eustace's uh, updated agricultural bill this morning? No, I certainly not, no. I I mean, I accept that this government are are not truthful. Um, So it's no surprise we always suspected this would happen. What kind of impact? I mean, we, we, we know, don't we, that moving away from the common agricultural policy is going to impact on farmers in some shape or form. What are your, your chief concerns? I think, you know, the biggest concern for us is the loss of our access to the European market at the same time of being flooded with cheaper, less regulated, poorer quality imports. Um, the subsidy also has an impact and it sounds like it's a lot of money but in farming terms you know it's these big numbers here tractors and fertilizers cost a lot of money so um whilst it's a a big headline grabber for us the hardest thing to survive is going to be the impact on our marketplace okay now the i mean the EU subsidies to UK farmers, I think, were worth something like three billion pounds a year. Do you think it's possible for for a, a, a newly liberated, taking back control UK government to actually match that level of subsidy? Well, I'm not the I'm not in charge of the you know the Treasury Treasury Department, um, but they've got a lot of 
problems here. They've got a lot of people wanting money, you know, yeah. and, and, and we always knew, this is what we said to a lot of farming friends before the referendum, we're going to be at the bottom of the pile here to be looked after. And a lot of people probably think farming, it's a myopic thing, it doesn't matter. But ultimately, it is the consumer that will suffer because their food prices are going to increase. And that food is going to be of lower quality. Is it, I was going to say, with, with chlorinated chicken as, as a possibility, I mean, George, you used to sort of been fairly... Some people would say it's quite vague about uh, whether or not we might change rules and import it. Um, is it not possible that actually food prices could go down, that uh, that what we've got is prices being artificially kept high by EU regulations, high grades, you know, um, I, you know I think they're, no, broadly speaking, good work. regulations? You don't think so? It work like that. I mean, we've got difficulties with our climate and also limited amount of space. So, you know, it's the same as... If you look at, say, a country like Bermuda, who has to import all of their food, you'd think the food should be cheap there, but it's not. It's expensive. So you've got to think about things slightly differently. Um, The reason we we had subsidies was after the war, the lessons were learned that we need to invest in our food security to make sure that we can always feed our people. And that is the, the thing that concerns me the most as a normal person, if I take my farmer's hat off, uh, my great-grandfather survived the uh, potato famine and, and came over to England from Ireland. And uh, those lessons of hunger have, have, have been passed down to me, and I'm concerned about the loss of our food security, as well as the health impacts of having poor-quality food. On top of that, the damage to the actual rural economy and the rural environment of us not doing what we've always yeah. done you know where we farm where we have cattle we can't do anything else with that land it's not good enough to grow anything but our cattle have been on that land grazing for many 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 decades um, and they, they play a part in keeping everything nice and tidy if we can't afford to keep those cows then that land is going to fall um, into, into scrubland. Is it, I mean, without being uh, too uh, probing, I mean, d- does the EU subsidy keep your farm going? It's a, you know, farming is a tough... It depends, I suppose. You're on... So some years you, you might do... In 2011 was a bonus year for farmers. The weather was right and things came together and that was, that was a kind of a good year. And every other year has been bad. Right. So, yes, the subsidy keeps us going. We have diversified. We have a solar farm, and that gives us okay. a, a level of use, thank goodness. And, you know, I, I salute Sir Davy for that yep, initiative. Yeah. Um, without that, we would be seriously worried. The Matthew Wright Show on Talk Radio. As you've probably heard on the news, the River Severn uh, broke through its flood defences in Bewdley in the early hours. Now, Bewdley, um, it does get flooded quite a lot, but my uh, my auntie Jan, who's uh, near um, Ironbridge, um, Ironbridge, I heard, was being evacuated a little while ago. <sighs> 
Regular listeners will know that we, I've spoken to a lot of smart people who, who argue that flood defences are a very expensive and arguably fairly ineffective method of stemming the tide. I mean, they've been flood defences at Bewdley and they were breached, uh, despite the fact that actually the river didn't reach its highest point. I think the highest it's ever been is 5.56 metres. I think it was 5.52 when it breached the defences. Um, we're blowing something like £5 billion of taxpayers' money on new defences. 1,500 projects designed to protect 300,000 homes are going to be completed, I think, within a year or two. And ministers say to date something like 200,000 homes are protected, which sounds impressive, until you consider that there are actually 5.4 million properties in England alone that are deemed to be at risk of flooding. Um, flood damage costs a country something like £1.1 billion every year. If you look at what we're paying... Um, it would suggest that, according to government-owned figures, they've not actually even secured a 4%, a measly 4% of flood-hit properties. Still, so the vast majority are still unaffected, are still affected. Is it fair to say, therefore, that our current flood defence plan amounts to roughly one soggy foot forward and two sudden feet backwards? Uh, Paul Cobbing joins us on the line. He's the chief exec of the National Flood Forum. Good afternoon to you, Paul. Good afternoon to you. How bad is it out there at the moment, in your opinion? Uh, it's very bad. Now, if you've been had flood water in your home uh, with all the sewage that goes with it, you know that it's very, very bad. And what's more, it isn't, doesn't go away when the water goes away. It lasts a lifetime. The impacts last a lifetime. And, you know, we're talking about something like 15,000 people a year get flooded on average, or 15,000 properties with all the people yes, inside them. Yes. And the impact on people's mental health, their health, their ability to work, the community's infrastructure, the uh, the, the blight that it causes, the uh, impact on employment and so on is huge. Uh, uh, are flood defences the answer? OK. I, or we, strongly believe that you should be looking at the full range of things yeah, that you need to yeah, do yeah. to protect people. And that includes planning and development. It means using infrastructure investment to help manage water. It means public health. It means certainly the resilient stuff in local councils. It means using the let investment vehicles to, as part and part of all the solutions. And we need to have a clear sense of what it is that we're trying to achieve, both nationally, perhaps with some ambition, target, standard, whatever you wish to call it, yep. and how that can be applied in each place. And is that... Until we have that, we don't really know how well we're doing. How would you describe the setup uh, with regard to managing flood risk from central government down? How would you describe it at the moment? Well, what happens is we tend to have you know, a, a lump of money, and we've heard it recently from the Secretary of State, said, oh, we're, we're going to invest $4 billion, yep. and that's great, and that's, that's welcome, but we don't really know whether that's enough, and that tends to be for flood defence schemes, you know, walls and pumps yes. next to rivers, whereas actually the majority of people flood from lots of other sources, so um, particularly surface water flooding, which is the stuff in, you know, the streets, in suburban streets, you'll get two or three homes flooded, four or five homes flooded in a patch and so on, and that's where flood defences are not so appropriate, and we need to look back to that list of 28 other, other uh, interventions to help us to better manage water in those places. When you look at the scale of the problem faced by householders, um, 5.4 million properties in England deemed to be at risk, and you look at the rate at which we are installing flood defences, whichever kind, the money that's been set aside, the ongoing £1.1 billion a year for flood damage, 
We're yeah. never going to get there, are we? I mean, in, in, in the real world, there's three of us in the studio now, Larry, Kevin and myself, we will be dead, long dead, before we actually protect those 5.4 million homes. Okay. First of all, I think it's unhelpful to just think that 5.4 million people are, are at risk. They're the ones oh, they're homes. Those risk. are the homes. Yeah, those are the homes, sorry. Yeah. Uh, the better bit, the way to look at it is actually we are all at some level of risk. You, you know, I frequently get people saying, I live on the top of a hill, I'm OK. <laughs> no, you're not. Actually, you're not OK. You are at risk as much as anybody else, though you think that you are not. Okay, and there are there's a, there's a combination of things that need to happen here. One is um, the things that the state can do really well, and we're not doing enough of them. Go on. And, the, and so, for example, how much do we need to spend on highways to maintain, maintain them in a state so that they don't cause problems? Great for, question. Um, for people in homes, or businesses for that matter. Um, we have no idea at the moment, but um, it is a question we do need to answer. Equally... There are things that people can do. So, for example, we are getting lots of calls at the moment from people who thought their insurance policy covered themselves from flooding and then realize that it, now realise that it doesn't after the event. So please, please, please read your insurance policy thoroughly yes. to make sure that you are covered for flooding. The Matthew Wright Show on Talk Radio. Right now, I want to uh, return to um, the, problem, the problems faced by our uh, new Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, uh, billed by many as a sort of puppet Chancellor, after um, well, after his predecessor was uh, rather rapidly shown the door. And at uh, the heart of uh, this discussion is what he should do. Should he break a manifesto pledges uh, by Boris Johnson that, uh, that taxes were not going to be raised, that they would be frozen... If he goes down that route, with so many promises from Boris Johnson and his team on, on big spending projects, it would seem to experts uh, that we should have to borrow more. Borrow more, that doesn't seem to go down well with the IFS, the Institute of Fiscal Studies, who, who raised the alarm today. And I'm delighted to say that Carl Emerson, their deputy director, joins us now. Good afternoon, Carl. Good afternoon. He's got a very difficult job, a balancing act for the budget on March the 11th, I believe the date's now been set. Indeed, that's right. In fact, I mean, whenever you're Chancellor, it's difficult. There's trade-offs to be made. Um, those challenges have not been made easier by various commitments that the Conservatives have made. On the, on the one hand, their manifesto has commitments about how they'll manage the public finances on borrowing. Um, if you want to keep to them, the situation looks like you could increase investment spending. No problem. But if the government wants to spend more on day-to-day -day things, um, it would need to either cut spending elsewhere to pay for it or it would need to put up taxes. Um, and there's quite a long list of things that they want to spend more money on um, and there's less long list of taxes they want to put up or indeed areas of spending they want to cut. Is, is, there, is there a third way um, that one might say that m some of the, the big spending projects that have been announced may never happen? That uh, that you can you can throw out uh, this sort of political oh we're going to do this because it's what the people want and then you know, a year or two go by and then you quietly forget all about it. Certainly on investment projects, there's been a long history of more <laughs> things being announced than what's actually then subsequently happened, and that's been going on over decades under um, whoever's in power. There's tended to be um, less investment done than what has been announced and then been um, intended. But of course you. 
and as I say, actually on the investment side, there's, there's, there is scope within the rules they've set themselves to do more spending if they want. Um, but it's the day-to-day -day spending, which could mean um, if they want to spend more on tax credits or benefits, if they want to spend more on public sector workers, for example, extra police on the streets, um, more money on schools, hospitals, defence, overseas aid. There's, there's a long list of areas where they've committed to spending more. Yes. And the, the trouble with trying to squeeze the rest of government is essentially that's what's been going on for the last decade. Yeah. And other parts of government really have been cut quite hard over the last 10 years. I mean, just if you look at sort of Home Office justice and, and police, you know, 20 or 25,000 police and support workers shown the door, and then Boris Johnson promised to get 20,000 know, 20, back again. There's a, there's a cost uh, attached to that. You and your There is, and also, of course, if you're, if you're hiring 20,000 extra police officers, which you might you want to do... You have to train them as well. Yeah. You have to train them, but you might then need to spend more money on the courts and the prison service yes. because those police officers, presumably, the whole point is that they might be providing more work for the courts and prisons to be doing. What's your problem with borrowing? You reckon the government's on track to borrow £23 billion more than uh, most official forecasts have put on track to borrow something like £60, £63 billion. It's, a, it's really about trade-off with risks. If you're borrowing money to spend on really good investment projects and you're, you're borrowing cheap and you know that you can do that investment well, I think there's a really strong case for doing it. If you're borrowing money just because um, you want to spend things on, on the things that are nice to have, day-to-day -day mm. items that we're all going to enjoy at the moment, but you're borrowing it because you don't like the price of it, you don't want to put taxes up now, well, that seems a little bit disingenuous. We're going to have to pay for it with higher taxes yeah. at some point. Um, so, you know, we can have more spending if we want, if we're prepared to pay for it. It feels less desirable to have more spending now if we don't like the price of it in terms of people having to pay through higher taxes. You at the IFS have revisited... Um the mansion tax idea, whether I mean, I call it mansion tax. I think you're suggesting some kind of extra council tax band. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, I mean, this one seems to go, come back, go, come back. Originally a Labour idea, then adopted by the Lib Dems. Uh, then we're told the Tories are going to go for it. Then last week we're told they're not going to go for it. It would seem to me, Carl, that a tax on, on, on wealthy people's property would be an attack on core Tory voters. It would certainly affect um, relatively well-off people in London and the South East, many of whom may vote um, Conservative. Um, I mean, the Conservative Party manifesto does have a line in yeah. it about potentially taxing yeah. well-off people a bit more, where it sees them as not um, appropriately paying enough tax. And council tax is a rather odd tax. In England, it depends not on the value of your home now, but the value of your home in 1991, yeah. um, which is rather odd. And if your house is worth, say, three times more than someone else's, you don't pay three times more tax. So uh, an economist looking at this would say, well, really, the tax should yes. be at least neutral with respect to the tax base. It should be a constant percentage. Um, and it's rather odd that we tax very big, very valuable properties in London and the southeast at a lower rate than lower value properties either because they've always been cheaper or because perhaps they just haven't risen in value as much but since 1991. It, yeah, but however, um, the thing about council tax is, as a council taxpayer, I don't know what band I am, but it seems doesn't seem to have gone down. It never goes down. You know, it's it going up to, all across exactly. the board. Yeah. You know, this is, it's a big tax. It's not, I can't cut my, I can cut my electricity usage. I can cut my gas usage. I can do all sorts of things to reduce my other bills. With council tax, I have no way to be able to reduce that, which I resent massively. I should have some way to get that cheaper, but you can't. And also, this, it absolutely becomes a tax on people who live in the South. Well, if you have a more expensive house in the South, you're probably paying a massive mortgage. So you've got those huge costs, which you won't have if you're in the North. Could, in fact, if, if I may go from there, take that as the springboard, Carl, into mm -hmm. you're advocating 
tax rises, who's going to pay these uh, these these higher or, or new taxes? I mean, Larry's quite right. Um, we're all paying council tax, and earlier enough, all of us are paying council tax, and there is nothing we can do to cut it. Um, there could be other taxes coming down the line, or are you advocating for income tax uh, increases? Well, I mean, I'm not advocating well, tax uh, rises. As, I mean, as, no, an, you could, as an alternative I mean, to so, borrowing. So as an alternative, yeah. Ultimately, there's a political decision to make yes. about how much yeah. spending we want, and we will have to pay for that, and we could have less public spending and lower taxes or more spending and more taxes and that's the choice we face over the longer term and if you enjoyed all of that make sure you tune in to the Matthew Wright show with Kevin O'Sullivan every weekday from one on talk radio a new year is full of surprises but one thing is always predictable postage costs go up stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89 percent off usps and ups services so when postage goes up your business will barely notice the change stamps.com is like your own personal post office wherever you are you can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app no lines no traffic no waiting schedule package pickups automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart there's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies labels even printers stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours all you need is a computer or phone and printer take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with stamps.com sign up with promo code program for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.